Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good. My name is Dave Sherwood. I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone. Welcome you to our festivities today. If you are a visitor, I would invite you when you exit this service today, go through the foyers over to the right. You'll see kind of a pellet wall, all kinds of cool information about our connect groups, youth ministry, children's ministry, lottery ticket numbers, everything you need for an awesome life. Um, the other thing I want to remind everybody about is if you are coming here and you've got one of those fancy schmancy uh, smartphones, you can download an app called Uversion and you can basically open it up during the service. You can actually sign in here and you get all the notes and cool stuff like that. So I would encourage you to do that as well. Um, I want to have you bang your hands together here in a second. The Thanksgiving dinner that we do here for People that don't necessarily have family, extended family, or a place to do Thanksgiving, we got all the supplies that we need, so bang your hands together. Awesome. And next week, you might want to show up a little bit early because of the Bouncy Ball Challenge. And you're going, what's the Bouncy Ball Challenge? The Bouncy Ball Challenge, I'm glad you asked, is this. The kids in uh, our kids' ministry stuff have basically been doing memory verses. And every time they get a memory verse, they get to take this little bouncy ball and they get it to put it into this bucket and the bucket's gotten bigger, 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 bigger. And so what we're going to do is in between first service and second service next week, we're going to basically do a bouncy ball drop and they will all come down and bounce. And having other people there is like our way of telling our, our kids, you're awesome, you did this, you filled up the bouncy ball thing, amen, fantastic, boy. Got it? All right, good, 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 good stuff. Um, what I'm going to do here in just a second is I'm going to pray. And so if you're a believer, I certainly invite you to uh, pray with me. If you're not a believer, just shut your eyes, kind of maybe just open up your heart, open up your mind to the idea of God for him to teach us. But what we're going to do in the beginning part of that prayer is we're going to have 22 seconds of silence. And the reason for that is as we're coming through Veterans Day weekend, um, I want you to know that there are 22 veterans a day that commit suicide. And so when you think about the cost of war, and you think about um, what the failure of international politics has cost us, when you think about the freedoms that we enjoy, it's the sacrifice not just over there. Sometimes it's a sacrifice that, that comes back home. It just takes... A while before it hits. And so in that 22 seconds, I want you to be praying for veterans that are out there, praying for any veterans that would be thinking about it today. I want you to be kind of just taking some, some moments of basically silence and appreciation for the sacrifice people have made. So I'll just basically start out the prayer. I'll let 22 seconds go by, and then I'll finish off the prayer. So if you will bow your heads and shut your eyes. Father God, Father God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you, Father, for the country that you've allowed us to be in and serve. And we would ask, Father, that today in your name you would open us up to understanding your word, and thus your heart, your, your will, and your ways. We also would pray in the name of Jesus that your Holy Spirit would go forth to rescue veterans whose hearts and minds are in dark places. 
And we ask that you would call them to the light, call them to your love. And perhaps, Father, you'd use us to call them to you. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. All God's people said, amen. Okay, so we, um, if you haven't been here last week, we started a, a series on politics. You excited? Yeah. yeah, I didn't get fired and some of you came back, so that's good so far. Yeah. Um, so politics, let me explain real quick again, is not necessarily just big national politics and elephants and donkeys and all that good stuff. Politics is basically how are we going to interact? Okay, we've got to share supplies, we've got to share ideas, we've got to collaborate on all sorts of things. Politics is the question about how are we going to have a dialogue how are we going to create policy? How are we going, what structures are we going to build so that we can come together and agree to disagree and get, get things done? So politics is everywhere. Politics is in your household. Politics is at school. Politics is at your job. Politics is on TV. It's, it's everywhere. So let me kind of enter into what the trap feels like a little bit. And we're going to go about halfway through the sermon, and then hopefully we'll start to talk about getting out of the trap. But let me, let me explain the way the trap is right now. Because everybody's here, they, you all want to do the right thing, right? Everybody want to do the right thing? You, you guys all want to know how to vote, right? You want to be on God's side voting, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to tell you guys how to vote, right? <laughs> there we go. So it goes like this. My team's right. No, my team's right. No, your leader should be in jail. Are you kidding me? Your leader should be in jail. Lock her up. Impeach. Right to bear arms. Freedom of the press. We're Christians. <laughs> no, we're Christians. Law and order. Compassion and justice. Jerusalem had walls. Hospitality demands we take in exiles. Constitution, Statue of Liberty, boom, 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 boom. And they play us off. And you pick which ones. Now, they're all values. They're all ideas. The question is, how sure are you that you're in the right camp? And here's the even more complex question. Maybe it's not this or this. Maybe it's something else altogether. Because when you think that it's this or this, you go through life with kind of victim, villain, right, wrong, and, that, that, and that's just everything. And are you really willing to subscribe to a bunch of politicians one way or the other and think that they've got it all right? Have, have you not seen the TV over the last couple of years? Okay. So then the question also becomes, how do you frame things at home or at work? Is it me versus the teacher? Is it me versus my spouse? Is it me versus who's right, who's wrong? How will we figure this out? And maybe not just figure out like who's right or wrong. How do we figure out how to live together with each other knowing that some people may be wrong? And sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's somebody else. Well, let's jump right into the first part of this that you might not like. First Peter 2, 13 through 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So let me start there and offer a couple of things for you to start to think about. First of all is the word submit. So submit basically 
is this idea that it's not all about me, that sometimes somebody else in authority, I will go ahead and kind of go along with maybe everything, but oftentimes just components of that authority because we need to get things done. We all can't be in charge, right? Okay, we, we can't. Okay. Now, the other thing to know about submission is submission only has meaning if you give it as a gift. It can't be demanded. So if I say to my wife, woman, you need to submit to me. When we get home, I want some barbecue, I want some pizza, I want my feet rubbed while I watch football games. That ain't going to fly. Why? Because that's not the way submission works. Submission is a gift that she can give to me, and submission is a gift that I can give to her, and I can give it lots of other places. What, well, well, what if they're a, a terrible person? That's a great question, right? Because, again, I want you to notice this whole thing about submit yourselves to authority. Then the question becomes, well, is that like a commandment like all the time? Or is it a principle all the time? Well, it's a principle all the time. How do I know that? Well, if everybody's submitting to authorities, World War I, World War II, which authorities were right or wrong? Or let's make it really tricky. If you were in Germany, should you have submitted to Hitler when he was doing the atrocious things that he was doing? No, it's a general principle. And the principle is that by and large, the way authority is supposed to function is it punishes bad and it rewards good. It constructs things and it makes sure that things are imprisoned that are bad and wrong. Okay? Now, then the tricky question also becomes, well, who am I going to submit to and are they worthy of it? Now, do you think we all might have different little sets of questions to determine who's worthy of actually getting respect and honor and submission? Yeah, we might. Do you think that everybody we've ever met in our entire lives has failed? Yeah, pr probably. That's my point. Notice what it says. Submit yourselves because they get it perfect? No. Submit yourselves because they are in complete alignment with your perspectives? No. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. And then it goes into those general principles of punishment and construction, punishment and praise. Basically, God's way of saying, this is the operating system that you people have. Now, the question is, how are you going to do this politics thing? How are you going to do submission? How are you going to engage these things? The verses go on, and it says this, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Now notice again what's going on here. You get some explanations that take a second to just think about. One of the things that it says here is it says, that your submission is an example that silences other people's stupidity. What? Exactly. That instead of submitting and doing what? Well, look. Act as a free man. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So I'm offering submission to somebody that I may not agree with everything about, I'm offering submission for, for God's sake as a general principle. I am a free person. Are we all Americans in here? 
My God, are we all Americans in here? We're free. There we go. Okay. And if you're illegal, see me after class. But anyways, we're, we're all free. But then it says this. Use your freedom in a very specific way. Not as a covering for evil. But as a bondservant for God. Well, what does that mean? It means that my freedom is not freedom to slander against authority, gossip against authority, disrespect authority, use character assassination. Now, here's, my, here, here's why. He explains why. We're not supposed to engage in all those things because we're supposed to set a different example for the world about how we do politics, about how we do relationships, and that our example as salt and light in the world silences the mouths of foolishness. Did we just go through an election cycle? Yeah. Did you see some ads? Not, not, not most ads, because most, most of the ads were, were very, very mature, very, very focused on platform. But, but did you maybe, maybe just see one ad that didn't say anything about the person that had the ad in, but had 10,000 slams on the other side? Did you see any of those? Did you not see any of those? Because that's all I saw. Well, that's how you win, Dave. That's not our way. That's not how we win. By honor, by respect, by love, by submission, the way we carry ourselves shuts the mouths of foolishness and shows the world a different way of doing things. Are we free? Yes. But, little asterisk, am I free to say everything that pops into my mind? No. Why? Because I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm a bond slave for Christ. Which means the things that are going on in my head and in my heart, my actions and my words, don't just represent me anymore they represent him. And we're supposed to be salt and light to the world about how we engage things. So the question becomes, how are you doing at those sort of things? Not just politics up there, but think about your boss. Do you slander and gossip about your boss? Or do you have a buddy that you get together with, whether it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and slander and gossip about your husband or your wife? Or do you have you know, a bunch of other friends that you know, on Instagram or Snapchat that you talk about what terrible parents you have? Is that the way you're going to engage things? Us versus them at all costs. So this idea of submission and of honor, that's kind of over here. And you might think, okay, Dave, those are some things for me to think about and how I engage my family, how I engage things at work. But what, is there anything, I mean, is that the only, no. Let me partially destroy what I just said. Okay? Yeah. So in the New Testament, when Jesus is around about, there is a couple of different politics going on, so let me explain it real quick. So Rome has conquered Israel, and the people that are in Israel, the Jews, are trying to figure out, okay, what does that mean? Rome has taken over. How am I supposed to deal with Rome? 
Now notice a couple of things that Jesus says. Jesus says things like, if a Roman soldier smacks you on one cheek, you turn the other, and you carry things a second mile. But there's this general sense of politics out there that gives you three options. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they get together, and they form something called a Sanhedrin. So it's kind of Senate, House of Representatives, forms the Sanhedrin. They work under Rome. They are the collaborators. They're the office brown-nosers. Okay? They're the people that work with the powers that be because they want to at least still have some control. The second group is a group called the Zealots. And the Zealots, basically, the way they deal with Rome is we just need to overthrow Rome. Okay? It's us versus them. And the Zealots are constantly trying to recruit people to kick Rome out because that's the answer. These are the sort of people that go through life and they frame everything as there's a set of villains out there and I'm a victim. Villain, victim, villain, victim, villain, victim. And that's the way they approach everything. And then there's the third group called the Essenes. And the Essenes are basically, they take the, the Amish exit. They're like, I, you know, I, I, just don't, I just don't engage. How do you feel about the boss? Eh. How do you feel about the teacher? Eh. How do you feel about the coach? How do you feel about, and the list just goes on and on, and their answer is, eh. you know, it just, it doesn't matter, my voice doesn't matter, I'm just going to exit, and I'm going to, you know, not engage. Now, all of these, whether it's the war, whether it's being kind of passive, or whether it's kind of compromise, all of these things affect things. So what happens is, these are kind of your options, Jesus shows up, he says a lot of things that we'll actually talk about next week. He says a lot of interesting things, but he basically gets killed. He gets crucified, he dies, and he's resurrected again. He comes back to life, and his disciples start preaching. He's alive! Now, the collaborators with Rome are like, no, 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 this is a, this is a terrible idea. Jesus, we viewed as a rebel and a revolutionary, and we, we just killed him to get on the good graces with Rome. You guys, you disciple people that say he's risen from the dead, you guys are going to get us all in big trouble. You with me? Okay. So let me go to the book of Acts, and this is what happens. Because the disciples are out and about preaching. Someone came and narked on them. The men who you put in prison are standing in the temple, and they are teaching the people. And when the captain, the Roman captain, went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them, the disciples, back without violence, because they were afraid of the people, that they might get stoned to death, because these disciples are very popular with everybody out there. And what happens is basically Rome is going to exercise some power. Now, should the disciples submit? And honor? Because that's just what I told you, right? This is what they do. When they had them brought, when they brought them in, they stood them before the council. And the high priest questioned them. You there? Nope. Okay. When they brought them in, they stood them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, 
and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. There we go. Just a, a slight delay. Wanted to get you guys excited about that verse. So basically, they're brought before this Pharisee, Sadducee, Sanhedrin. And the powers that be said, look, we told you guys to honor us and to submit to us. And the disciples basically say, look, there's a time and a place, and we must obey God rather than man. So it sounds like you can be subversive. It sounds like you can be revolutionary. It sounds like there's at least a little bit of a caveat of doing not honor. And here's, here's the trick. Then, then you end up feeling like you're boxed in. Okay, how do I honor and respect and submit? And at the same point in time, sometimes it looks like God wants me to do the opposite of that. Well, here's where things get messy and wonderful. There's a third way. There's, a, there's, there's something different than just us versus them. And the third way is the way of maturity. I want you to watch a video about this because it does a better job explaining it than I can. In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect, but instead they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being. But in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right, this is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice, but they do it non-violently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles, 
But don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime. But then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall, and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile, waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the Apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But, well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. You'll notice that the pitch, the way our culture works, is this or that. So you're Republican or you're Democrat. But not just that, but you know, you're your boss. You're either on your boss's side or you're not on your boss's side. You you're either, you know, either buy these kind of clothes or buy or you view things this way or that. And that they're trying to stick everything that way. And you get pitched against different things, and you're like, wow, you know, that group really makes sense about this, and this group really makes sense about this, and this group really makes sense about this. And so you, you end up kind of dividing your time and your attention and your focus on all kinds of different things. And then you start to frame, you know what, this is right and that's wrong, and I, I'm going to have a war with them. But notice what it's talked about with this Jeremiah passage. They're in captivity, and when they're in captivity... They're supposed to maintain their primary allegiance to God and to view the world as something that they serve and they salt and they light. Now, here's the way it basically works. If your core needs, your core emotional needs, your ideology needs, if all that's being met by the world, then the world's just going to play you off against each other. 
But if you stand before God and you go, God, you're my core. The core of my identity, meaning, existence, everything is wrapped up in you. Then when you look out at the world, instead of trying to pick who's right and wrong, you just serve. And when you see darkness, you cast light and salt. And where you see light, you encourage it to grow. Notice in this passage in Ephesians 2.19, it says this. It says, you no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Now, what's going on? Well, in the, in the early church in, in Ephesus and in some of the early churches, you have this little bit of a division that's going on. You've got people that have kind of come to Christianity the, the, at that point in time, the normal way, out of Judaism. Jesus was a Jewish prophet, Messiah, and so the initial believers are all Jews, but then these non-Jews start to come in, and they're like, you know, where do we really stand? Are we in or are we out? You with me? I don't know if you've ever felt this way. Maybe the first time you came into church, you're like, man, the walls are going to fall in, lightning's going to hit me. If they knew what was really going on inside of me, dude, if God revealed to everybody in this room what's going on inside of all of us, (laughs) yeah what would he reveal he would reveal i've adopted you just the way you are and i'm transforming you and i love you and welcome to my big ugly messy loud family and that's what's going on in ephesians paul is explaining you've been invited into this family but notice the thing that he also adds to it your fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. He's trying to do an identity thing. What's your citizenship? Are you Jewish or are you Roman? He gets rid of all that. You are a citizen of God's household in heaven. And that's your primary allegiance now. You don't get caught up in the little games down here. Now, that doesn't mean that what's going on down here doesn't matter. It does. You're not going to hide like in a scene You're not necessarily going to compromise like a Pharisee or a Sadducee. You're not necessarily just going to have little wars going on. Anybody ever seen this thing called Twitter? The only thing that people do on on Twitter is flamethrow, right? And politicians, they just throw bombs back and forth. But we're the people that stand in the gap in the third way. And we say, what does Scripture say? What's God's heart? What's God's will? And they keep trying to go, well, pick my side or pick my side. And we're like, dude, we're on, we're on God's side. And we need everybody to focus on these things. What's God's will? What's God's way? How can I be salt and light? And so you may go, well, Dave, you don't know my parents. And I'd go, you're right, I don't know your parents. I do know your Father in heaven. That's your primary connection. Be salt and light to your parents. They're in authority. Well, you don't know my boss. My boss is, I know, for the Lord's sake, respect and honor your boss and all men. Well, those Republicans, well, those Democrats, for the Lord's sake, do not use your freedom to cover up sin by slandering and gossip and tearing into those people. You're starting to get the idea of what's going on and the tension. Are you a citizen of heaven sent here as an ambassador of light? Or are you still playing the little games of the world? Jesus answered when, at his trial, and he said, My kingdom is not of this world. Now, this would be a huge problem for the zealots, because the zealots wanted to line things up as, Here's Rome, and you know what? We've got this Messiah, and the Messiah is going to knock Rome over. And Jesus 
washes the feet of Rome and says, go the second mile and turn the other cheek. He is building a kingdom within us, in our thoughts, and in our hearts, and in our minds. And the more we're transformed and our example shuts the mouths of foolish men, and the more our example is salt and light and others join us, then we can actually start to change the way this planet works. But if all we're going to do is jump into this planet's little gamesmanship of rhetoric and violence and gossip and slander, nothing's going to change because God doesn't inhabit that way of changing things. He's not the author of evil for the sake of good. That's not the way he does things, nor do his people. So we've talked a little bit about this third way. We've talked about honor and submission to the king, to the emperor, We've also talked about, hey, I've got to obey God over Caesar. We've talked a little bit about what it means to kind of be above things. What happens when you have to actually confront evil, especially evil that's in authority or in power? Glad you asked that question. Let me tell you a little backstory. There's this guy. His name's King David. And King David, it says in the time of year when kings are supposed to basically be out kind of patrolling the borders and doing their king job, he's at home on the roof, looking out. And he sees a woman on another rooftop in a jacuzzi, naked. It's not really a jacuzzi, I'm just kidding. And they have an affair. Her name's Bathsheba. And she gets pregnant from the affair. And David, who we hear in Bible is a, God, is, is a man after God's own heart, and he's a king, he's like a hero in the Bible, he's done this bad thing. And, you know, the great thing about doing a bad thing is you can always make it worse. So she gets pregnant. So what he does is he says to her husband, what's his name again, Uriah? Okay, that's all right. Um, why, don't you, why don't you come back, because he's out doing that, you know, that, that military stuff. Why don't you come back home and sleep with your wife? And so the, the guy comes back like he's going to come back home and sleep with his wife. But he says to David, Dave, my, my, you know, my guys, my Marines are out on maneuvers. They don't get to go home and sleep with their wives. And so I'm not going to do this thing. That would be dishonorable to them. Which has got to sting after David's already been really dishonorable, right? And so he gets sent back and he gets set up by David to be killed. David, our hero does a terrible thing. How do we address those terrible things? How do we address teachers, coaches, politicians, our spouse, and everything else? Well, here we start to get some indications. It says in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 3, there's this poor guy named Nathan. He gets this task. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan came to him and he said, now I want you to notice, he doesn't just bring out the flamethrower on Twitter. You did this bad thing. He starts telling a story. There were two men in a certain city. One was rich and the other was poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cows. But the poor man had only one little female lamb that he had bought. And he had raised her. And she grew up in his home with his children. Now before I go too much farther with this story, I want you to notice a couple of things. One is... So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And you go, that's great. The Lord is sending you where? 
to confront what? Now, that's where, that's where it gets real, right? Because we read these Bible stories, we go, oh, that's that guy back then. Well, the whole point in that story about that guy back then is that that story gets repeated over and over again. We're ambassadors for God. We are salt and light in the world. Poor Nathan, he gets this job, and we get this job. And you go, ah, poor Nathan, that, I mean, that stinks, right? Well, no, think, think about this. What's it like if, if David is on a path of destruction where he's going to become more and more evil if he's not confronted? Well, that's, that's terrible. He's going to damage a lot, of, a lot more people. But what if Nathan is sent not just to confront him, but basically rescue him and the future? That if David can get back on track with God, what's that going to do to the world? The question becomes, what if your spouse gets back on track with God? What if your boss gets on track with God? What if, and the list goes on and on and on. Now notice the way that Nathan, Nathan is framing this. He's telling a story. Because most of the way that we do confrontation when we have to talk truth to power, truth to the king, doesn't work. Let me give you an example. I want you to think of the last time somebody cornered you and went, rah, 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 rah. and then you went, now. Thank you for having the courage to tell me that thing. When was the last time that, that played itself out? It doesn't play itself out that way. Okay? It'd be great if it did. It'd be great if we were all mature enough that that played itself out. So what he does is he is telling this story that David can actually enter into because he needs David to enter into the story so he can help David to escape. I can't tell you how many times Amy and I have had a, a discussion. And when I was younger, and it's still not where it needs to be, but it's better than you. When I was younger, she would say something, and I would just be basically, you know, hurry up, get to the summation, tell me what I need to change. I wasn't really listening to her. I wasn't really feeling what she feels. I wasn't entering into her world. I wasn't being intimate with her. I was really just trying to change my behavior a little bit to do some damage control and her being angry at me. What's it like to enter into somebody else's perspective and then to draw them to maybe see things differently? That's what Nathan is doing. He's talking about this lamb. David was a shepherd. It's an illustration that fits who David is, what his passions are, what he values. And when you're talking to truth in power, you have to be able to contextualize, explain it in a way they understand things. So when I'm talking to somebody that doesn't know anything about Christianity and, you know, they're a gear monkey, I, I say, well, you need to do confession. And they're like, what's confession? I'm like, you know how you change your oil? That's confession. You just need to clean out the system with God. I may say it a very different way to someone else. But the story goes on, it says this, about this little lamb. She would eat his food and drink from his cup, and she rested in his arms and was like a daughter. Now, a visitor came to the rich man, and the rich man thought, eh, it'd be a pity to take one of my own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. 
So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared her for the traveler. Now, what do you think's going on inside of David? David's like, dude, I identify with this guy. He's got this really cool lamb, and it's like a daughter to him, and he, he curls up, and it like snuggles and stuff. And I'm a manly man, but snuggles. I mean, I'm digging this whole lamb thing. And then this other guy's introduced into the story, and so there's this rich man, and he just thinks he can just take this poor man's lamb. Oh, I'm, 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 getting, I'm getting mad here. And the story goes on. David burned with anger against the man. I solemnly swear, as the Lord lives, he said to Nathan, the man who did this certainly deserves to die. He must pay back four times the price of the lamb because he did this and he had no pity. Now, what has Nathan done? Nathan has provoked David's passions. He's provoked David's shepherd's heart. He's provoked David's best sense of who he is, a sense of justice and fairness and rightness. He's brought the best of David up to the table, and he's aimed him at something. David just doesn't know what he's gotten aimed at yet until the next verse. 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 9. David, you want to know who you are ticked at? You are the man, Nathan told David. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. I gave you your master's, Saul's house and his wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this is not enough, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise my word by doing what I considered evil? Now, you may think, You know, the whole point of this verse is those couple of words, you are the man. Actually, notice this whole context. He talks to David about, yes, what you've done wrong, but he also explains the root of why he did it and what the solution is. Notice, David, like anybody that sins, people steal, people have affairs, people do all sorts of things because they're not satisfied with what they have. What's happened to David is, David's forgotten. I was rescued from Saul. I was given this kingdom. I have tremendous stuff. I should have been solely connected to God as the sole provider of my, my, my needs and my heart and my mind. But I got kind of bored with that, and I was up on the roof, and I got greedy, and I wanted more. And I completely kind of lost my mind and made terrible decisions. So we're talking to this person in authority, and we've told them a story, and we've customized it to something that they would understand, and then we turn it so that they can see what's happened. And then we are also providing solutions like, David, if you want to be good in the future, remember who you are, remember where you came from, remember God's love, remember his character, remember his provision, remember the world can't provide these things, be in the right places at the right times doing the right things, and this won't happen again, not just to you, but to poor Bathsheba, poor Uriah, poor Israel. Now then the question becomes, 
is God going to ever ask you to do something like this? I had a friend named Matt, and he had one job, and he was moving to another job, and he was just trying to scrape by. And so he took this job with this air conditioning company. And what I'm about to say does not reflect on all air conditioning companies, but in the second day of training, they teach him how to rip people off. Like You open up the AC unit, and you do X, Y, and Z, and then you tell them that this and this and this is wrong, and you pump up that price. And so this guy, Matt, that I'm discipling, comes to me and goes, what, what do I do? And I go, well, what do you think you do? He goes, oh, I can't be a part of that. And I'm like, I, I know you can't be a part of that. What, what are your options? Well, I, I, can, I, can, I can try to get another job and then quit after I've got another job lined out, or I, I need to not for one single day participate in this. I just need to quit today. And I'm like, well, what else can you do? He's like, well, I, you could go confront them. But they're just going to fire me. You're right. They're just going to fire you. It, it won't work. You won't win. You'll be righteous before God because you will have been his ambassador of salt and light. It's not just about winning. It's not about whether it works. It's not just about, it's about who you are and what you represent and who you represent and how we affect the world. How do you handle people in authority is the open question. And are you doing it in a way that Jesus goes, yeah, I'm on, I'm on page with the way you do that, or do you not? And what would the world be like if you changed maybe how you handled, how you engaged with authority? Some people need to bring more honor and submission to, the, to play. Some people need to bring more confrontation to play. Some people need to sometimes just stand up and say, I've got to obey God and not man. But there's all bunch of things. And you might say something like this. David, you know, I've listened to all this stuff. I get it. I think you're just naive, Dave. That, that's never going to win or work. And I, and I don't know, you know, let, let's just pick any authority figure, but we'll just call them your boss for, for the sake of argument right now. Dave, you don't know my boss. This will never work or win with my boss. And my response would be, I, I do know your boss. And you go, Dave, no, you don't, you don't know my boss. You have no idea what my boss is like, especially behind closed doors. You don't know my boss. Yeah, I know your boss. You don't know my boss. I know your boss. You don't know my boss. Actually, I do know your boss. And your boss says you're a citizen of his household and that his reputation is in the line with everything that you think, feel, say, and do. And he sent you, like Nathan, into this world, sometimes to submit and honor sometimes to confront. But you're not a citizen of this place and its little dark games. You're a citizen of the Lord of light and truth and hope and meaning. Do you think about yourself that way? Because every time we do things the right way, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work or win here, it does work or win up there. He looks down and says, that's my beloved son, that's my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. The kingdom that God is building here is getting built by every single moment of obedience and truth and grace. Will you be a part of that? Or do you still want to mess around with these sick, twisted little games that these people are trying to pull on you, sucking them into their little camps? I suggest you give up on them. 
and let him run it all. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you and we get confused, Father, about how to handle Caesar, Babylon, our boss, our spouse, our teacher, our coach, our politics. And we would ask, Father, that you would show us how to be salt and light, that you would show us how to love our enemies, that you would show us how to bridle our tongues as ambassadors for you. Would you show us how to live this adventure of building your kingdom everywhere we go through everything that we do? We pray for your strength to do all these things. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said...